0: Well, the congregation here is truly entering into an exciting time. We've got all kinds of new things that are happening, one of which is the appointment of new deacons. The deacons that we have now are overloaded. I imagine you could ask any one of them and they would agree. That's a good problem to have, though, because the fact is that when there is a heavy workload, that means that there is work to be done which means that there is growth that can happen. And so we view this as a positive time, a time to look to the future, things that are happening, things that are changing as we grow stronger, closer to God, and as we draw others in with us. And so as a congregation, our plan right now is to appoint more deacons. And just briefly before we get into the lesson, let me just give you some dates so that you can know exactly the plan at which, by which the elders are going to accomplish this. There's going to be a period of two weeks, beginning from tonight, in which you can talk to those who you believe are qualified to be deacons, and if they are agreeable to serve, you can let their names be known to the elders. The deadline for that is going to be two weeks from tonight, October 12th, on Sunday night. If you think somebody should be appointed as a deacon, you have two weeks to talk to them and get their name to the elders. After that, that's it. It's over. Maybe next time. Then, there will be a two-week period after the elders have received their names in which they will meet with those whose names have been given to them to make sure that they are willing to serve, to make sure that the relationship should work well. And at the end of that two-week period, on October 26th, they're going to put the names before the congregation of those who are going to be considered uh, for the office of deacon. Finally, you're going to have about, practically, about a week and a half that if you have any issues or any questions that you have for those men, to go talk to them, to resolve any issues that you might have, and if you're unable to resolve with them, to go to the elders and talk with the elders, with the deacon, And that will end on November 5th, so that come November 9th, the elders will be able to name those men who are being appointed as deacons so the dates to be remembered, October 12th, have the name in. October 26th, those names are going to be put before the congregation. And then on November 9th, those men who are going to be deacons will be appointed. That's the process that we're going through. And so tonight, because we're doing that, The elders thought it would be a good idea for us to give some consideration to some issues regarding the deacons. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss the duty of the deacons very briefly. Then we're going to take a look at the qualifications that God has listed for those who are to be deacons. And then finally, while I obviously cannot anticipate every question that every brother in Christ might have about appointing folks to, to be a deacon, I am going to take a look at three common questions that I have seen come up repeatedly at all kinds of churches regarding the deacons and their qualifications. And so we're going to be looking at that tonight. Certainly, if I don't answer a question that you have, please feel free to come talk with me. I'd love to study the Bible with you and look at what God's Word says about any issue. And so if you have any questions following tonight's sermon about deacons and their qualifications and their duties, Please feel free to come talk with me, and let's study the Bible together regarding that. Let's begin by looking at the deacon's duty. Well, one of the things regarding deacons that we find in the Scriptures is that, regrettably, there is no passage that I am aware of in the New Testament that actually specifically describes the deacon's duty. We have passages for the elders. First Peter chapter 5 is one. We have passages regarding evangelists, the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, but we don't have that for the deacons. Additionally, the one passage that we have that might possibly be an example of deacons, brethren don't universally agree whether or not that's deacon whether or not in Acts chapter six those are deacons. And so we can't necessarily use that as a guide for us as we consider the deacons' duties. However, I believe we can take a look at the word itself. And the word deacon itself can tell us exactly what the duty of a deacon is. The word deacon in our English Bibles translates the Greek word diakonos. Now, that may mean very little to you as it means to me. I've had to look it up in a dictionary. I imagine most most of us here would have to do that. According to Vines, that word means and primarily denotes a servant, whether as doing servile work or as an attendant, rendering free service. And so when we talk about appointing someone to the role of deacon... We recognize that what we are appointing a man to is a role of servant within the congregation. He is going to serve the congregation. That's his job. That's what he does. That's what the word means. Now, while we are all supposed to be servants, and in fact this term is used in Scripture to refer to all Christians and the ministering and the serving that we do for one another we obviously recognize that here is a specific and special office, an appointed role in which somebody has been set aside and their life is now devoted within the congregation to serving within that congregation. We recognize that as elders have oversight over the congregation, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, 1 Peter 5 and verse 2, Peter told the elders, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, that the deacons who are appointed as servants are clearly going to be serving under the authority of the elders. The elders are going to be overseeing their work. What we might naturally regard this as is that the deacons essentially become assistants to the elders. The elders who are overseeing and guiding the flock, casting a vision for us, letting us know where this church is going and what we need to do, could clearly not accomplish every aspect of the work within a congregation, or even manage every aspect of the work, and so it's natural that they're going to turn to others to help them, and appoint folks to those offices and those roles, and that seems to be exactly what's happened here in the New Testament. As we have the office of deacon established, men to serve under the elders. Now, I'm not talking about junior elders. I'm not talking about associate elders. I'm not even talking about a training ground to become elders, though a deacon, that's often what it can be. But that's not specifically what it's designed for. We're talking about men who serve within the congregation, serving as the elders appoint them to serve within the congregation. Naturally, this is probably why we find the deacons, when they are mentioned specifically, mentioned along with the elders. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. As Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he said to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. When we read about the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that was just the natural progress. After he talked about the the qualifications for the elders, to then go on and talk about this other office, the qualification for deacons, to appoint those who would be servants within the congregation. And the deacon's job is therefore to serve in whatever capacity is necessary and needed into the position in which they are appointed by the elders within the congregation. Now, because the deacons are servants, we can tell from that that their work is rarely prestigious, And deacons rarely receive the amount of thanks that they deserve for the hard work that they do. But we need to understand that deacons are absolutely essential to a well-run, well-functioning, well-organized congregation. And that's, of course, why we're appointing more. Because there is service that needs to be rendered. There is work that needs to be accomplished. And we need to appoint men in order to accomplish that work. That's their job. Then, if you're not willing to be servants, when somebody comes to you and asks you, are you willing to be a deacon, you need to just tell them, no. I still have lots to learn about serving. If you're willing to be a servant, then you can do the duty of deacon. But that leads us then, of course, to the qualifications of deacons. And I want us to take a look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, the Scripture begins, 1 Timothy 3, 8, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, Faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness and faith which is in Christ Jesus. As you look at these qualifications, I'm sure that you can tell this is not difficult. We're not talking about rocket science. You don't have to have a theology degree to understand what these things are saying. But as we take a look at them, we've got two preliminary points that I want you to recognize as you consider these things in general. First of all, I want you to remember that God gave us this list in order to qualify men, not disqualify them. Now, there's a reason why I bring this up. Because it seems, sadly to say, that in most churches, when you get down to appointing men to deacon and elders, folks look at these lists of qualifications, as though it is a license to intrude into every detail of a man's life to actually rip him to shreds and point out how he doesn't fit them all. That's not why God gave us these. God gave us this list so we could go into the congregation and we could develop brethren in Christ to grow up and be strong, faithful Christians so they could be deacons, not so we could blow godly men out of the water. We need to look at this for qualification. Who fits this? Our job is not to rip brethren to shreds, but to examine their lives and to appoint those who are qualified to be deacons. The second thing we need to understand is that in general, while there are some exceptions, in general, most of these qualifications are growth-oriented. We need to understand that. There's only a couple of these that are either or. Husband of one wife. He's either married or he's not. That's just a fact. But if you take something like reverence, that's a growth issue. How's he going to grow? What? How mature is this man? When we look at a beacon, he does not have to be as reverent as he possibly could be because that would mean he would have no room to grow. If that's the case, how many of us would fit? Not a single one. But what we recognize is that we're supposed to appoint men who have achieved a level of maturity that they stand out. Have they ever had a time of irreverence? I'm certain that they have, haven't we all? Do they have room to grow as far as reverence? You know, I can see a few areas where they can improve. I'm certain you could. We all have areas to improve. But have they reached the level of maturity in which they stand out? regarding these issues that are growth-oriented. And as you're looking out at the congregation, as you're looking at the men that you're considering, that's what you need to look at. Don't ask yourselves, are they perfect? Ask yourselves, are they mature? Have they grown? Do they demonstrate the maturity that Paul lists here?" Let's take a look at each of these qualifications just briefly. Again, these are not difficult things. The Scripture says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent. Deacons must be reverent. They must be dignified. They must recognize the seriousness and sobriety of Christianity and how it should be approached seriously. And they recognize the serious nature of the role of being deacon and they approach the work accordingly. Not flippantly, not irreverently, not recklessly and carelessly, but reverently, honoring God in all that they do. Paul goes on to point out that they are not to be double tongued. That's very easy. They're not to be liars. They're not to be hypocrites. What we see here is the way they ought to be in all places, whether at home, at work, in the neighborhood, with their kids, with their friends. They're not double-times. They're not hypocrites. They're sincere, and they're honest. They're not to be given to much wine. These are men who are not controlled by the passions of the flesh, but rather they have their flesh in check and under control, governing their lives. It goes on to say that they're not greedy for money. The King James Version says not greedy for a filthy lucre. It's sad to say, but when people hold an official position, whether it's in the church or any type of organization, they will often try to use that for money. Paul says we don't want any of that in the church. Those who are qualified to be deacons are those who are not greedy. They won't use their office as a means to build the brethren out of money because they're content with what God has given them. It goes on to say that they hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. These are men who know what's right and want to do what's right no matter what anyone else says. These are men who do not waver in their faith. They're not on again, off again, but they have demonstrated a steadiness, holding fast to the faith which God has revealed to us in His Word. It's a sad thing that in a lot of churches, folks think if we appoint somebody to a position, maybe they'll grow up. No, not when it comes to deacon. They need to have grown already and demonstrated their steadfastness, solidity in Christ, holding fast, doing what they believe is right, no matter what anyone else thinks. It goes on to say they must then be tested. If they've tested and been found, blameless. This is one that we need to consider for just a moment because we need to understand that blameless does not mean sinless. If blameless meant sinless, who among us could be a deacon? None of us could be a deacon. But secondly, this also does not mean that nobody's ever blamed them for anything. The sad fact is that as Christians, the world is far too ready to blame us for any number of things. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 12, the Scripture points out that we as Christians ought to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers. The fact is, if we've got somebody who's qualified as a deacon, he's probably going to have been spoken against by those who are in the world, because that's what they do. They speak against us. But we're supposed to have honorable conduct so that when they do that, they may by our good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. A blameless man is a man who lives with this honorable conduct so that his deeds speak louder than the words of those who speak evil against him. That when his life is examined, we realize that no blame can stick on him. And that those who do oppose him will be ashamed as they've tried to Mar, mar, the reputation of a good man. He could be blameless. We'll come back to the next statement in just a moment. Let's skip down and point out that deacons must be the husbands of one wife. Deacons obviously are supposed to be married men, but the qualification goes further than that. Literally, the phrase here is that he is to be a one-woman man. He is to be devoted to his one wife. He's not a flirt. He doesn't have a wandering eye. He doesn't behave inappropriately around women. When it comes to his emotional, physical, spiritual needs regarding those of the opposite gender, he gets that from his wife, not from anyone else. He is devoted to that woman and satisfied with that woman. That's what it means to be a one-woman man. And then it goes on to say that they must rule their children and their own houses well. Perhaps this is the testing ground which had been mentioned up above. Let them first be tested. We need to look at their homes. How do they work in their homes? Do they rule their own homes well? Take a look at their children. How do they deal with their children? Do they rule their children well? Men who cannot rule their children should not be servants in Christ's church. Men who cannot manage the affairs of a household should not be assigned to manage the affairs of Christ's church. And so he says that they need to be men who rule well their children and their own houses. And the final indicator, let's go back to their wives. Their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. If you look at a man and consider him for the office of deacon, you need to look to his wife. Is she a good, godly, reliable woman who herself is a worker that can be relied upon? in Christ church. These are the men that are qualified to be deacons. As you consider and you think about men, don't just think about nice guys. Don't just think about guys that you really like. Don't just think about guys who did some nice things for you one time. Think about these kind of men. We can sum it up in a nutshell. Godly, mature Christians who stand out among the brethren these are the ones that you need to consider. Do you know any men like this here within the congregation? Then seek them out and ask them if they're willing to serve. If they are, take their name to the elders. You've got two weeks to do that. But these are the kind of men that you need to be looking for. Before we close the sermon tonight, let's look at three common questions dealing with these qualifications that I've heard come up in numerous congregations and So I hope that we can deal with most of the questions in this way. Number one, are deacons allowed a little wine? Speaking about alcohol here. You see, some folks will look at the passage and it points out that they're not to be given to much wine and they'll say, well see, that means in order to be a deacon they're allowed to be moderate social drinkers. Now obviously I don't have time right now to preach to you about why no Christian is allowed to be a moderate social drinker. But let's just leave that aside. Let's just consider what this text says. And I want us to note two points that demonstrate that this idea is a flawed idea. Deacons are not allowed to be given to a little wine. They are not allowed to be social, moderate drinkers. Number one, regarding the way words are used in the Bible, the word wine in the Bible is used in a very similar way as our modern word cider. Sometimes it means alcohol, and sometimes it does not. If I were to tell you that I was going to a block party where we were going to booze it up, could you go pick me up some cider? You'd know what I was talking about, wouldn't you? And you'd fire me. But if I said, you know what? We, we sure need some juice at our house. The kids need some juice. Could you go pick up some apple cider? You'd know what I was talking about there, too, wouldn't you? The word wine is used in that very same way in the Scripture. It can mean both that which is alcoholic and that which is not alcoholic. And I want you to look at that text in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and tell me exactly what it is in that text that demonstrates to you that we're dealing with alcohol here. The only thing that makes this wine alcohol here is our preconceived ideas. I may be wrong about this, and I had a second point, just in case I am. But I don't believe that he's talking about alcohol here at all. I believe he's talking about the same thing that the proverbialist spoke about so much, about those who are gluttons, those who are controlled by their physical passions. And he's pointing out that a deacon ought not be one to be controlled by his physical passions, but has his flesh in check. That's where I am on this passage. Now, I could be wrong, if I am wrong. If he is mentioning alcohol, let me make a second point. And that is, the fact that he says not given to much wine, no more authorizes having a little wine, than the fact that he said don't be greedy of filthy lucre would authorize being greedy of just plain old money. Nobody ever goes and looks at that passage and says, don't be greedy of filthy lucre, and says, well, it's all right then if the deacon's greedy of just a little little money and just plain old money as long as it's not filthy lucre. Nobody would say that. And by the same token, nobody can go to this passage and say, well, it says not given to much wine, which means he's allowed to be given to a little wine. It just doesn't follow. It's not logical. It doesn't fit the text. So, can a deacon be given to a little wine? Absolutely not. If you're a drinker, you and I need to talk. You can't be a deacon. We also need to talk about your soul. Question number two. Does a deacon have to have more than one child? The text here says that he must rule his children well. And so some have held the position that that means a person in order to be a deacon has to have more than one child. He has to have children. I'd like to make two points about that as well. First of all, I'd like you to notice what that entire sentence says it says that he must rule, they must rule all their children and their own houses. If this text points out that a deacon has to have more than one child, it also points out that he has to own more than one house. And if he does not, then he can't be a deacon. But that's not what this text is saying. This text is using these plurals distributively. That is, he says, Deacons... They're ruling their children and their houses. He talks about deacons, plurally, And so, because each of them would have at least one child, he talks about their children, plurally, just like each of them would have one house or one household, and they're supposed to rule those well. But secondly, if that's not the case, even if he were referring to a deacon and used the term children, the Bible repeatedly uses the plural form for children to apply to situations where there will either be only one child or more than one child. And if we go into these passages here with the deacons and make this passage mean that they have to have more than one children, we're going to have some interesting ramifications in other passages. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, when we're trying to find out whether or not we can support a widow, we're going to learn that we're not to let a widow under 60 years old, for 75, 9. We're not to let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she's been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children. We're going to have to make every widow that we're going to support have more than one child brought them up. Here's another one. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, we're going to find out that the only child does not have to obey his parents, Until a sibling is born. Because there it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But even more convincingly, we find out in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, that as long as the father has only one child, he can provoke him to wrath. But once he has a second one, he has to stop. Because it says, You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. We all recognize in these passages that if you only have one child, the passage still applies. Because that's the way the Bible uses this term. It uses the plural to refer to situations where they may have more than one or they may only have one. That's the way we use the term children. And that's the way the word the Bible uses the word children. Does the deacon have to have more than one child? The answer is no. Does the deacon have to have at least one child? Yes. That's to demonstrate his ability to rule in his household and rule his children. But he doesn't have to have more than one. And the third question, can a divorced or widowed and remarried man be a deacon? We can look in First Timothy chapter 3, and we recognize that it says that he is to be a one-woman man, to be the husband of one wife. And because of that, there are some who have looked at those who have been divorced or widowed and remarried, and they have claimed that that man has had two wives, and so he can't be a deacon. But I want you to look at the passage again, and I want you to notice what it says. The passage does not ask us or tell us about how many times the deacon is allowed to have been married. It tells us about how many wives he's allowed to have. He has to be the husband of one wife. Let me ask you. A man whose wife died, and he is now remarried, how many wives does he have? He has one. No matter how we may view it emotionally, The Bible tells us that when a spouse dies, we are no longer married. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, the Scripture says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if a husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. When a spouse dies, we're no longer married. We're no longer bound by God's law of marriage. And so when the spouse dies and the man marries again, he does not have two wives. He is not now a two-woman man. He is a one-woman man. He has one wife. And we consider also the divorced man. Divorced lawfully. Having put his spouse away for fornication and married another. How many wives does that man have? He only has one wife. And brethren, think about it. If we're going to say he can't be a deacon because he's not the husband of just one wife, not only can he not be a deacon, but he can't be a member here because the New Testament doesn't authorize polygamy, does it? We don't allow polygamy. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, let each man have his own wife and each wife her own husband. That's what's authorized. And so if we're going to say that a man who has been divorced lawfully can't be a deacon because he's remarried and has two wives, we need to deal with his polygamy and his soul. But so we understand this man only has one wife. Only one. Now here's the problem with these last two questions often is that we get into the issues of trying to figure out why did God make these qualifications. Perhaps sometimes in my human wisdom I can speculate why God to the qualifications that he did. But the fact is he didn't tell us why each one of these had to be the case. And we can't make rules based upon what we think about why God did what He did. We can simply read what it says and make our decisions based on what it says. Can a man have a little wine and be a deacon? No. Can he have one child? Does he have to have more than one child? No, he can have one. Can a divorced, widowed, and remarried man be a deacon? Yes, he can because he's still only the husband of one wife. I hope that this has been helpful to you. I'm sure that probably there are some who still have questions about things. I'm more than happy to study those with you. Let's discuss those. But I hope what I've been able to do is to impress upon you the seriousness I hope I've been able to impress upon you the seriousness of what it is that we're doing as we appoint men to serve in Christ church. It was so serious that God listed qualifications to demonstrate the kind of mature men that He wanted. I believe there are those kind of mature men here who can fill the office of deacon. It is now your responsibility to seek those men out and to let the elders know who those men are. Please do that within the next few weeks. Would you please pull out your songbooks?